You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends, here we are. Goodness me, some of you are listening in March, some of you are tuning in later, but uh, episode number 132 of Managing Leadership Anxiety Podcast. And today, I get to go across the pond to interview uh, people who I consider dear friends of mine. We, we get to catch up twice a year, but also people whose leadership and way of thinking about Christianity, I just have such profound respect for. For my North American listeners, there is a movement in Europe called the European Learning Community. It's a group of churches primarily. They covenant to meet twice a year for two years. So they basically do four meetings over two years and we all gather, a bunch of us come over to help. And uh, right now it's something like 85 or 90 churches from all over Europe. The majority of them from the UK, England, uh, Scotland, Wales and Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, I started going, gosh, I don't remember, maybe 2017. I don't even remember when I started, but in my very first trip, I met Howard and Holly Satterthwaite and uh, they had just recently stepped into the lead pastor role at Westminster Chapel, which is a historic urban church right in the heart of London. Uh, just to orient you, for those of you who have not been to London, their neighbor is Buckingham Palace. Not bad. And uh, Westminster Chapel has a profoundly rich history. What struck me about Howard and Holly is, is a combination of their heart and their thoughtfulness of how do you actually reach urban Londoners, especially when so many of them don't live in the city? How do you reach people who are commuting in and city dwellers with the gospel? Uh, particularly in urban London, of course, a lot of skepticism around the gospel. So we really hit it off. We got to know each other well. Pretty much every time I'm over there now, I'm trying to connect uh, at least with Howard. And uh, what, what I'm really thrilled to say is uh, earlier, what, late last year, guys, October last year, they released their first book, spiritual detox. And uh, I think one of the most creative chapter heading um, books I've ever read. I'm going to read you each uh, chapter title. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now you can figure out where the commas go yourself. But the whole book is about the power of confession and what it does to us and how it benefits us. So Howard and Holly, Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, let's have one of you kick off and just tell us, okay, what what brought you around to writing this book? I think we really just wanted to ourselves and for other people to experience the joy of God's forgiveness and just the, the brilliance that confession is and freedom from guilt and shame and to turn a moment of grace that many might have experienced through getting saved into a lifetime of experiencing mm the grace and the goodness of God. We believe that confession is about restoration of joy. It's fellowship. I think of David, when he confesses his sins, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, he talks about bones that are crushed, rejoicing again. And for me particularly, I think it was it was kind of therapy for me. I really needed this to detox a sense of guilt and shame in life. So I found it just so rewarding and so so beneficial. I think we found as well when we started to look into the topic that 
there actually isn't that much out there on the practice of confession and um, kind of talking around with people that we knew, church leaders and also just other believers, we realised that this actually isn't something that's commonly done anymore um, and that perhaps this has become a neglected practice to our detriment. Um, And there's some kind of assumptions that we hold about the practice of confession. Maybe we feel a bit um, anxious about stepping into that, or we feel like it's going to be a con- something that condemns us. Um, but actually, there's some real uh, joy and freedom that awaits us in that. There's something that we're missing out on by not having that as a regular part of our days. Yeah. And just to clarify, guys, when you're teaching on confession, the opportunity to get in touch with the forgiveness of God in a tangible way, you're talking about to one another, not just privately to God. We think it's a a bit of both, really. Um, So we've obviously based the book on 1 John 1, 9. So we see that as primarily that verse about um, our relationship with God, restored fellowship with God. That's what it begins with. And then there can be confession of sin, um, which is repeated to somebody else and affirmed by somebody else. Sort of they've they've heard your confession. They're not forgiving you as such because your sin may not have been committed against them, but God and but they're affirming that and giving you a sense of accountability with that. And then there's more of what James is talking about in his letter of a confession of sin to one another that's about healing and the bitterness and unforgiveness and brokenness that can happen in in, in coming amongst Christians. So but our, our sort of steer is if we can get confession to God, that sort of private sense of confession, right, if that grounded that first, really understanding that as well, doing that well, then we can ripple effect out that towards others um, and build on that basis. Yeah. You know, I'm sure when some people hear about confession, particularly those who came from a Catholic background, and maybe they were made to go to confession, like as a kid, uh, where they actually have to sit down with a priest, it's a bit scary. There's the curtain and the box and the whole deal. What would you say to those people that when they hear the word confession, they have like a visceral reaction against it? <laughs> I would agree with them because that's that's probably where I came from. <laughs> I don't really like the whole I didn't like the whole idea of it. I think it you think of it as sort of a, a depressing journey of introspection and soul searching mm. and agonizing and I must beat myself up. And I I think part of why we wanted to write the book was really recover that. I think that's a wrong image of confession. And real confession is God's invitation right from the start of the Bible. The first question is an invitation to confession where God says, where are you? Where are you at spiritually to to the first human beings? And he was inviting them just to own that, embrace the reality of that experience, grace, restoration through coming out of hiding and the shame, guilt, you know, the the shadows that they were in the bushes Mm. to come back into relationship Mm. with God. So we'd really want to speak to people like that, speak to people who felt like I did to say confession is maybe not what you think it is. Um, It's a far more joyful, liberating, happy practice where you don't have to necessarily beat yourself up. Yes, you need to look at your sin to go down on the trampoline, if you like, but in order to bounce up high, to really experience the greatness of God's love. So we've got to look at the depths of our sin to really appreciate the mm-hmm. greater depths of God's love for us. So there is a bit of pain involved. It is a bit tough in that sense, but it's worth it 
to go through that. But it, it ultimately really begins with God and we've all can have access to God. We don't have to come through another person to meet with God. And 1 John 1, 9 invites us into um, into that, into a relationship with him. The surrounding context of the passage talks about fellowship four times, about yeah. closer intimacy with mm. God. And through that, then we can have that closer relationship with others. And I'd add as well, I think it, we have to remember when we come into confession who we are confessing to. Um, mm. And sometimes I think we can have those emotions because maybe actually underneath all of that, we don't have a very healthy view of the character of God and who God is. Um, particularly if we've struggled with the idea of God as father, um, sometimes we can come expecting harsh discipline rather than actually a God who is completely and utterly in love with us and devoted to us. Um, and we come to, to God um, not pleading and begging, like, um, but we come to him like a child um, who knows that Christ has already won the victory over this sin so as believers this this sin isn't something that we have to carry by not confessing we're choosing to carry it um so we can come to him freely we don't have to be afraid um of uh being punished because that punishment has already happened at the cross um so we can come with him like a like a child and i think we've um, talked before about the kind of illustration of um in fact i think chris um uh, Steve, that your daughter might be learning to drive at the moment. But uh, yes. when you loan your car to your kid, and if they take this car out and they crash it, um, if they before they come and kind of own up to that, there's a relational disconnect there. But your love and your devotion to that child hasn't changed. And I think that's a really good image for us in when we're thinking about confession. Um, the way God loves us and feels about us doesn't change. His devotion to us is still there. Um, but we want to have that freedom of fellowship with him that Howard talked about. So, yeah, I think at the heart it's trying to recover a right view of God's character mm. as we enter into confession too. Mm, I love that. It, just listening to both of you talk, what's provoked in me is I've been studying a Catholic priest, a Dominican priest named Herbert McCabe. I'd not heard of him before, but he has this provocative idea that um, what sin does is it doesn't change God's view of us. It infects our view of God's view of us. So when we are so-called in sin, we're no longer able to see God for who God is. And we assume that God is a harsh taskmaster, kind of what you were just laying out for us, Holly. Herbert McCabe uses the prodigal son story as his evidence. He says, if you look at the father, nothing ever changed. He was out chasing the youngest. The youngest started to see the dad as like maybe a, a slaveholder kind of metaphor, like I can come back and be your servant. But then the oldest, who was also in sin, he saw dad as this harsh taskmaster that never gave him a good time. McCabe's like, the dad has always been the loving father, but because both of these guys were not right with their dad, they couldn't see their dad. You know, Howard, I know that you've gone through, like we did a workshop together last time I was in England and we did that inner critic work. And I'm, I'm really convinced that one of the challenges is the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves tends to be what we project onto God. What would you guys say to help us really see who God is when the story we tell ourselves can be so different? It's so true, isn't it? I, 
I just go back to the Garden of Eden. It's the original deception, isn't it, about the character and nature of God, which tricks Adam and Eve into sin. Satan comes and he's saying that God is a mean killjoy and he's withholding stuff from us yeah. and tempting us um, to believe wrong things about God. And, and I suppose the way I like to think about answering that is with the first miracle that Jesus performs. Um, this gives me sort of great, great comfort and, and help is it's at, the, it's at a wedding and he's miraculously creating huge amounts of wine out of water to enable the joyful celebrations of a wedding to continue. And if you think about the amount there that's going on, it's just, it's phenomenal. So six stone jars, uh, something like 20 to 30 gallons of water. In my geeky moments, I worked out that was between 600 and 1,000 bottles of wine. Uh, at our wedding, we had 20. They're already at day <laughs> three. <laughs> uh, they're at day three and they've got 600 to 1,000 more bottles of wine. And Jesus is there and there's, He's saying that my hour is not yet come. So he's thinking about his death on the cross. He's thinking about the ultimate marriage between him and the church and the price it's going to pay. And he's creating wine, which we're going to take as an act of remembrance through communion of the blood that he shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he's creating just an abundance of it. So for me, it's sort of like the corrective um, revelation of who God is like and what his real character is that destroys Satan's lies is he's unbelievably generous and joyful, mm. particularly when it comes to forgiveness. And that's the kind of image of God that I try and sort of mm. brainwash myself with, with the truth. This is, mm. this is what he's really like. He's so generous. And then we've liked to use the sort of verse from 1 John 1, 9 and just look at the word and in there to back that up and based on his character he's faithful and just and he doesn't just forgive our sins and he cleanses us mm -hmm. and just looking at the generosity of god that he doesn't stop short of simply saving us justifying us he wants to sanctify us and then ultimately we're going to be glorified as well so mm -hmm. it's trying to fill for me it's trying to fill my mind with great thoughts about the character of god and who he is that then begins to then what he then says about me and the good things that he says over me, mm. they are true, have to be true because he's faithful. He's just, he's generous. He's not exaggerating. It's not hyperbole. So when he says he, you know, he's pleased with me because of who I am in Christ, that's true. Mm. And I can hold on to that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds was, good, doesn't it? Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that that will definitely preach. Oh man, when when I left home at seventeen, moved into a house with a bunch of guys, and a couple of the guys left. There were two of us at home. I don't mean to spit on my old friend Malcolm, but he was a chef who would only cook when a girl would come over. So that was <laughs> disappointing. But I digress. Um, but Malcolm and I had to find a new roommate and, and we took in a young fellow from our church named Joel. We didn't know him very well. And Joel was very different from us. And I had no emotional maturity. I was 17. So I did what any emotionally immature 17 year old would do. I talked about Joel to Malcolm a lot. How weird. Don't, can't, can't we agree together that he's weird and all of this stuff? And one day, uh, Joel asked if we could meet together and he sat me down and he confessed his sins to me. And he said, look, I've been bad-mouthing you and I've been judging you and I'm here to tell you that and I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I was so immature 
that I, I went into self-righteousness. Oh, certainly, Joel, I'd be very happy to, don't even mention it. Like, like I'm the better man. <laughs> so I forgive Joel and I'm like, well, that matter's done. And then Joel says to me, now it's your turn. I'm like, what? Now it's your turn to confess to me. Now he didn't know he wasn't, it wasn't a sting operation. He had been raised in a Christian tradition where you keep short accounts with one another. And uh, we became dear friends because we looked each other in the eye and we confessed. And, and, and it, it was a tremendously brave thing that he did. And it was a gift he offered me. I'd just love to hear whatever reaction you have to that. It reminds me of... Can I talk about Yeah. So um, it reminds me of a course, actually, that Howard and I have both done recently, which we actually reference in the book, I think. Um, we've just started going through it with our church. It's called the Steps Course. Um, it started originally in Denmark. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and it's a great course. And it and it's kind of a similar thing to what you've just talked about. I mean, it, it's based on the 12 steps from mm. which is technically for alcoholics, but it's been adapted. And um, it takes you through, yeah, these 12 different steps where you choose a particular unhelpful behavior, they phrase it, that you uh, or a sin that you're kind of um, struggling with. And you work through this step, these steps, but every week you meet in a small group and you literally just take it in turns. You've got like three minutes where you just confess to each other and it's totally unfiltered uncensored mm. sharing with one another and um it's i mean we just found it both really helpful the course didn't we and um it's we've just done uh, step one with our church um groups in our church and it's going really well and i think there's something really powerful about um other people um witnessing your confession to God. And um, I think maybe because as, as humans this side of the fall, we don't walk physically in the garden with God like we used to. And yeah. so although private confession is wonderful and can, we can definitely do that and is very, very powerful and we have the Holy Spirit within us that hopefully confirms that. But equally, sometimes I think when it's something that's really personal to us or that we really struggle with, there can be a power in somebody physically in front of us hearing that too um, because it reminds us that when we are confessing to God that he's hearing it too and it can feel more tangibly real I think, yeah, I think that's really powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think also it grows our fellowship with each other as well as yeah. believers. I think it's important to remember that sometimes if we, we can worry about being found out about our sin, but the truth is that we all have our sin that we're worried about being found out about. Um, it's not a lonely journey uh, struggling with sin because it's something that we all go through. It's just the manifestation of that sin is sometimes different in different people. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a fellowship we have in this journey of trying to become more Christ-like and being transformed and confessing our sin to God. That's not something that is not um, particular to any particular believer. So I think when we share that with each other, we remind each other that actually this is normal. This is part of being a follower of Christ. Mm. And actually it's a healthy sign of being a follower of Christ that we're recognizing that in ourselves and bringing it to each other and to God. Yeah. I think the people that I feel closest to are the ones who know the fullest extent of my sin 
mm. and continue to love and accept me in spite of that. Mm. I feel safe with them. I feel like I can be real and honest with them. And I think that's at the really the sort of heart of your story that I think real closeness comes as we're, we're genuine about these are the struggles I'm facing. Here's the sins that I'm committing in general or, or, and even against you. Mm, and it's just, yeah. it's just a powerful moment of deep connection rather than we're faking it. I'm pretending I'm, a, I'm avoiding, I'm too worried about my reputation or this or that. We can never really be seen and therefore known and love mm. for who we are, unless we we drop the guard with with at least some people in our life. Obviously, we don't want to go confessing to everybody all the time. Mm. <laughs> there needs to be yeah. some some filter yeah. on what we're it's saying. But but I, yeah. I think for those that we want real friendship with, deep friendship in our lives, I think we've got to take it that step closer and say, "Hey, that this is this is a sin I'm struggling with." Yeah. And if church yeah. is meant to, sorry, no, I was go ahead. Say, Holly. If, if church is meant to be like family that that is what family is right you know Howard and I live together and we have two obviously as husband and wife and we've got two young kids and we can't hide our sin from each other because we with each other all the time and yet there's there's that bond that's deeper than whether we're being nice to each other at that particular moment in time and I think there's that same unity and bond that that we should have with one another in church too and I think um yeah, choosing to continue to um, have friendship and love for one each one another when we're confessing our sins to each other um, is kind of a healthy sign of of church's family too. Yeah, uh, for my listeners, the book is called Spiritual Detox. Even though we're talking a lot about confession, which is the heart of the book, the title is Spiritual Detox. I know so many of my listeners, probably most of my listeners, are um, faith leaders of some kind, church leaders. We're always on the hunt for the next study or experience our small groups can do together. And this is, this is the one. Um, what we're talking about here, guys, is the idea that your small groups can grow deeper together through this practice. And Howard and Holly, in the book, I had the privilege of getting an advanced copy of it. They really do lead us through simple tools that anyone can do. Um, one of my favorite things about the book is every chapter they put a, a set prayer, a prayer from history that your group can pray together, particularly for those of us who are rabid Protestants. You know, uh, the way I describe it is Jesus uh, lived and died and rose again. And then until 1970, nothing happened. And then we started. <laughs> like that's kind of how us rabid Protestants are. We don't have a real sense of church history. Um, Howard and Holly will really teach us some ancient prayers and practices as well. Before we shift gears, guys, if somebody wanted to make bulk purchases of the book, um, obviously we have a global audience on the podcast. Where's the best place for them to go to maybe buy books for their whole congregation? Easiest place is probably Amazon, isn't it? Amazon US at the moment. I don't know if, the, I don't think there's a bulk deal. Okay. Yeah, Amazon's down. You guys are selling well over here. We're down to your last five copies over here. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hey. Good. Hey. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, were there six? <laughs> Maybe yeah. there were six in America. They should. Um, uh, they should reorder. I, I, but okay. ten, of, ten of those. I, I should double check. But ten of those have a have a American based a US based website. So you can buy I them in bulk there. Ten of those dot com or the American yeah. um, web address of ten of ten of those. So you can buy mm. ten of those. I think in the UK for ten. £10 a copy. And then if you yeah. buy more, you get a further discount. Mm. Brilliant. We'll we'll put that in the show notes for folks. Because I know a lot of people were always looking for just a, a simple experience for our people. And yeah, this is a great one. 
let's talk about church leadership, guys. Um, you know, you're, you guys are young leaders. You have young children. Um, I remember that stage of life. It just felt like nonstop pouring out. Um, you know, like my youngest is now 15. My middle child is 18. He came home from school by himself today. He cooked himself lunch at home while I'm working. I know it's the dream life. What you're, the things, I, yeah, dreams are made of that. <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not saying this to make you feel terrible. Hopefully to say when your kids are young and, and you're early in leadership, it just can feel like a, a constant pouring out. Um, did you step in at Westminster Chapel? Was it 2017 when you guys stepped into the lead role? Yeah, it was just, a, it was about um, September 2016. We okay. vote, voted in um, in the summer, um, as is the sort of tradition of Westminster Chapel. Um, you get a vote and then, um, and hands laid on in January 2017. Yep. So you're coming right up on your fifth anniversary. And I want to ask two facets of the question. The first one is, what's it like to step into a historical church with such deep roots? Like you've got, for example, one of the most famous preachers in in history was the former pastor at your church. Of course, you did not succeed Martin Lloyd-Jones, but most of us know Martin Lloyd-Jones. When I was with you, Howard, you showed me, you know, his preaching robe in the room that's almost not a museum, but almost like that. Uh, the, the added pressure that I don't know what that's like to step into something grand. Is that an accurate way? What was that mm -hmm. like for you guys, first of all? It was, it was pretty terrifying. I should say that, you know, I wear Lloyd Jones's robe for 30 minutes a day <laughs> to get the anointing passed off onto me. But no, I don't. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Um, it, it was pretty terrifying. I think um, you, the, the sense of imposter syndrome, who am I? Um, to be in this situation and um, so underqualified. I don't even have a theology degree. I have never led a church before. I'm not some kind of amazing super Bible teacher person. And it just felt pretty overwhelming, huge pressures. And at the same time, a sort of naive excitement mm. that maybe God has put me here and he's mm. doing something different at this time. And um, he wants the big name at Westminster Chapel to be Jesus, not a former preacher in the church. Right. And isn't it amazing about what he could do through a whole load of unknown people? And the question, who am I? Gosh, actually, that's quite a biblical question. Quite a few people have asked that. Who am I, God, that you, David, would say? So it's, it's that sense of total terror, yet also excitement and wrestling with your inner critic who's saying to you, you're not good enough. Um, you're not, you're not good enough in life. You're never going to make this work. You're going to fail. You're going to have to work hours on end to perfect your sermons and so on. And, um, or you need to be like Lloyd Jones. You need to be like RT Kendall and all the others who were there at the church before. Um, so it felt pretty challenging in those early years, moments of excitement, moments of sort of naive, youthful enthusiasm. Um, but, but mostly I think terror and a sense of feeling like an imposter <laughs> mm. and I think just yeah constantly feeling like you I felt like I had to look like I knew what I was doing mm. and to look confident but underneath feeling like 
gosh, I'm really making this up as I go along. Like I really have yeah. no idea what I'm doing. Um, and I think that, that we were in our church before we um, started leading it. And so it's interesting other people's reactions. I think sometimes I had to remind a few people that when you suddenly become the lead elder, it's not like you wake up that morning and then you're completely different people. Like I, I'm still the same person that I was like the few days before Howard came into this role. So I, I guess it's not like suddenly there's a switch and I'm now this super amazing pastor's wife and I'm ministry leader extraordinaire. I'm still on the journey of learning and working out what to do. Um, so I think there was, uh, yeah, there was a, a challenge there. And I think for us as a, a family as well, the pressure changed. And I think, um, it's funny, I think, Howard being full-time on staff but not in the lead role, You, I think we naively thought we knew what we were going into, yes. having seen that around. And we're like, oh, no, we're already doing it. It's not going to be too different. Like, we know what that's like. And then actually coming into it and over the first sort of year or two, just suddenly realizing that actually – actually, this feels like a much bigger burden. Um, a burden maybe isn't the right word, but it feels like a much bigger pressure. It's a lot more to carry. Um, and it has a bigger impact on us as a family than perhaps we realized. And even just like little things of, um, you know, our kids are really known. People who are complete strangers will come up and chat to them or um, try and engage with them. And, and that's really, really lovely. But it's something new for our small kids to get used to. Of yes. Why are these strangers talking to me? Um, mm. And uh, knowing how to deal with that. Um, and uh, <laughs> and also, a, I guess, a slightly comical change is, um, so I, up until recently, I was working in a very corporate job. Um, and suddenly to, when you meet people in my very corporate and the city of London's very secular, um, for people to be like, oh, what does your husband do? And you're like, oh, he leads a church. I tell you, nothing kills a conversation like that. Like <laughs> yes. instantly there's like this deadpan silence, like, oh, she's weird. And yeah, <laughs> just getting used to that as well. Of, um, yeah, how we are viewed is suddenly really different. You know, our kids start school and I remember we were invited to um, a drinks party, one of the parents, and they were chatting about what they do and it was going great. And then they, they found out you led a church and you could almost see the regret in their eyes that they'd invited us. Um, so I think just it's how we're viewed in church changes, but also how we're viewed in our in our community changes too and having to get used to that. Um, it was a big thing. I, I was surprised. So, so my like ministry experience, you know, obviously I started in hospital chaplaincy, which was a crazy way to start, but that's trauma and hospice chaplaincy. I did a stint as a youth minister in Appalachian, um, United States, kind of a real poverty stricken area, an incredible church. I did like crisis intervention on a farm for troubled teenagers. So they would be sent by judges. And then I did crisis intervention in Las Vegas at a mega church. People, homeless people, people with AIDS, like some of the worst abuse. Far and away, my hardest ever vocational role is suburban lead pastor. It's not even close. It's not even close. And my journey was, as you guys know, my family systems training and everything that I learned in chaplaincy and, and studied in grad school. Suddenly I get into the lead pastor chair and it's not working enough. It's like, wait, I've been operating this way for nine years at this point. I've been informally using systems theory in my life. 
Um, it's really what got my book going and Capable Life and my resources was the idea that if I don't develop a path that I can walk and my people can walk, I'm not going to make it in this job. I'm still trying to get the hang of why was the pressure so much different? What's your take on that? Like you guys just started hinting now at the pressure of it. Uh, obviously, the way people view you. For me, it was also that it became my, my ministry became so much more personal than it was before. I think I've always taken my ministry seriously, but mm. suddenly my well being was so wrapped up in how the church was. If anything in the church was a problem, I, I think I heard that, that I'm the problem. What are you guys thinking on all this? Mm. For me, I think one of my major challenges and struggles is dealing mm. with a need for approval. And so I think it just gives a much bigger stage for that, for the crack cocaine you know, of praise. Suddenly you're in this position, you get more opportunities to receive that or to be denied that. And so that intensification of that experience and opportunity was, I think, kind of partly mm. my struggle, my challenge of I feel like my identity and my reputation is so caught up. My, you know, I'm riding the roller coaster of what did people think about yeah. the most recent preach? You know, was it amazing, sensational, or how did this appeal and offering go? And looking at the numbers every week of how church is attendance and feeling like, oh, I'm doing really well. Yeah. Oh, I'm great. I feel happy. And then feeling low. And I think that that was very much those early days and a, a real struggle for me. And I think the world's leading anti-anxiety expert once said, <laughs> it's really important to be uh, human-sized, to see yourself as being human-sized. Um, and I think that's so helpful for me of recognizing that I just lost perspective on who I am in all of this. And I needed to start embracing the fact of, I'm not God. I can't do these things. I'm putting expectations on myself that are frankly only impossible if I was fully Christ-like, but I can't be fully Christ-like yeah. in the full sense of that in this life. So I need to be Howard and I, and I need to enjoy and embrace my limitations and my weaknesses and you know, my dyslexia, my Swiss cheese brain and how it connects things in an unusual way and you know, my past experiences, my ups and downs, my, you know, um, emotional instability, these, these sorts of things, which like, yes, I can work on that, but part of that's who I am. And I need to embrace those things and be who, who God's made me to be in order to serve really well. And moments of where you just really come to the end of yourself and you really kind of hit absolute rock bottom. And you know, that idol has been so smashed apart of, oh, I've, you know, my reputation or this, or the complaints or a criticism or a horrible email I think those are the moments that I think God has used where I've like, oh, okay, I'll die to that. Or I'm a failure. If, if the worst happens now, I'm okay with that, God. If you do that, if, you, if, you, if I get fired from this job, if I have to relocate my family, mm. oh, I can live with that. And it takes me a while to have, those, have that moment of coming back to a sense of peace of like, God's in control. He's good. It'll be okay. Um, it's, not, it's not about me. It's about him. I need to stop trying to build everything about me and what I think. So I think that step into that lead role kind of intensified my my mm. particular yeah. need for approval um, in a really bad way. And most of the time since has been learning to try and kill off that idol and sin. 
through a lot yeah. of confession <laughs> of it, really. And being open, you know, I've needed to do that directly to God regularly. And then being open with other people about it, I think naming it to tame it has mm. given a power over it that I'm not, I'm not afraid of that anymore. It's not going to control me. I'm not going to hide in the bushes. I'm going to be open with people. So I'll, I'll even yes. preach some of that. Yeah, share that um, with your people. It's in, yeah. it's in the book. And then, and then they start to know and they can identify, oh, okay, this is what's going on. And, and my staff team now understand if I'm feeling particularly moody, <laughs> but they can point out maybe well, what's happening. Well, and you are giving your me. staff and yeah. congregation such a gift that they get to be human too. Probably my preaching hero would be Fred Craddock. Mm-hmm. Um, he passed away in 2016, but he, he just made a simple comment. He's like, if you're not if you're if you're opening the text and you're asking the questions that scholars ask, if you're going straight to the commentaries, you're missing the people in the pew. And what you're teaching them is their questions, there's something wrong with their questions. But if you first approach the Bible as a human mm. before you ever get to a commentary, um, and so he, Fred Craddock was really coaching us, bring all your doubt. Like don't, don't throw up on your congregation. Don't make them carry the burden of your deepest challenges, but steward your humanity for your church so that they realize I get to be human here too. That's what I hear that you're saying, Howard, is you're, you, you guys are both bringing a gift of humanity. And of course, the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit is doing. This is what I love about this model is you're not impeding the Holy Spirit by being human-sized. But Holly, I was cutting you off. You were mm-hmm. about to say something there. No, it's fine. I um, I was thinking about, I don't know if many of your listeners are familiar with the drama mm. triangle. So you've kind of got your your rescuer, victim and persecutor. And I guess for me, I know naturally I am a chronic rescuer. And so I think when we stepped into the lead role, that just really intensified because suddenly we uh, not only had more opportunity to help people and more um, responsibility, but we were also suddenly exposed to so many more pastoral uh, situations going on. And I guess often when we're pulled in also to the real crisis moments of some really difficult things too. And so I think for me, it's been a real journey of learning emotional boundaries um, because I think for me, as we stepped into that lead role, I kind of continued in this martyrdom of, of rescuer trying to solve and plug every gap, whether that's a pastoral need or just, you know, a lack of volunteers on different um uh, rotors or even, you know, when Howard's talking about his challenges, like feeling like I yeah. have to rescue him from the pressures that he feels yeah. like he's experiencing. And obviously that's just not even possible. And um, so what happens is then um, I would trip up over into feeling bitter or resentful um, and feeling like, oh, people, all people do is ask things of me, um, where in fact, actually, they're only asking because I'm imposing right. that. Yes, you're them. generating that um, whole thing. So, yeah. yeah. And so I think for me, it's been, and actually, really, this last year gone has been a real lesson in really taming that particularly. Um, of actually there's a scale like I think often we think I can do nothing or I can solve this problem and actually there's a million things in between on that scale that we can do and for me I'm just trying to learn that practice of okay hang on wait a minute don't react straight away think about 
what are all the different options there? And what do I actually have capacity for? Thinking about my priorities of my marriage and my kids and my work and my main ministries that I'm actually responsible for. Um, what capacity do I have to do? I don't have to do nothing, but maybe instead of rescuing this woman, I'm just going to write her a short card and post it to her um, and, and pinpoint her in the direction of somebody else who can be that, you know, weekly person to talk to her. Um, so yeah, the idea of scaling has been really helpful for me. Um, and trying to step back out of that, that rescuer role has made life feel much more, um, well, much less overwhelming, mm. I would say. Um, and the other thing I would say that I think actually, when we first came into leadership roles, one of the things I really struggled with was loneliness. Um, because I felt really lonely, because suddenly, all my friendships, especially within church, their dynamic changed. Um, whereas now there was this leadership role. But actually learning as I tame that kind of rescuer model, that sometimes that dynamic changed because I made it change, because I stepped away from being a friend to now being their rescuer. And they didn't necessarily expect or ask me to do that. So uh, it's a painful. I, I think yeah. there is something about ministry that attracts a large percentage of overfunctioners sensitive performer not performance based but what you were saying howard your approval of others like I, it's almost like that's all the shadow side of the gifting that we have as as faith leaders i'm I, i'm having some uh transparencies i'm listening to you guys holly because probably <laughs> probably one of the most painful lessons for lisa and i was that we really felt that god was saying to us this is quite a while ago now god's like look you are shortchanging my work in people by rescuing them. And the people we were most rescuing were the people that were mad at me. Now, sometimes I had earned it, but more often than not, they'd projected something onto me because I was the lead pastor. And we would chase them, you know, when they were upset to try to win them back. And God's like, let them go. They've got... if. If I have a purpose for them where you're the bad guy, but they're growing in me, are you okay with that? And we're like, we are not okay with that at all. Like mm -hmm. we want to be loved and appreciated <laughs> and seen because I think that's it with criticism. Some of it, you know, is true, but a lot of it, it's like, you're not seeing who I really am. You're caricaturing me. And so let me wrap up with a final question. Um, I'd like to just get your guys' take on secondhand criticism. This is something I'm doing more and more work in because I think it's like, um, it feels like a neglected area of leadership. And it's when one spouse is getting attacked, but there's a significant impact on the other spouse. <laughs> but because, yeah, because they're not in the ring, they don't get to have a direct fight. Mm. And what, as Lisa and I have looked at this, because uh, I was not good with this in the early days, I would come home and vent and then this isn't really the way it was, but it was almost like, okay, we've agreed not to like this person. I'm exaggerating, but that's the idea. But then I go back to work and resolve. But I never came back to Lisa and updated. I'd never come back to her and say, we, we get to like this person again now. So she's left confused or sometimes she would show up and be frustrated. She's carrying my hurt. But then sometimes she disagrees with my decision as is the nature of church leadership. Sometimes I have to make the call and she's like, that. I don't think that's the way it should have been done, but it's my job. I make the call. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not, it doesn't matter whether I was right or not. What matters is now she's forced to kind of 
toe the cuss party line. Like she can't really be going around the church saying, yeah, I don't agree either with Steve. That's not helpful. <laughs> uh, what do you, what's your guys' reaction? Either of you, it'd be neat to hear from both of you on secondhand criticism. I think it's really, really hard. I mean, I guess speaking as the wife of a couple where I'm not technically on staff, I have like voluntary leadership positions, but I'm not on staff. I, I have really, really struggled with it. And, and in the past, I've said to Howard, I've used the words like, my emotional well-being tracks your emotional well-being. And that's how I feel it is. If, if you're up, I'm up. If you're down, I'm down. And I find it really hard for that to be any different. And, uh, and I know in the past, sometimes you've been saying, you've shared things with me and I've almost like shut you up. Like not because I mean, want to be mean, but I've said to you things like, I don't want to feel how you feel right now. Um, but I don't know how to hear you and not feel what you feel. Um, I think it's really difficult. And I think especially as spouses, when we're not on staff, there isn't always that space or person to talk to that, you know, sometimes there's gatherings for other church leaders and you can kind of share, but there's less of that sometimes if you're the spouse and maybe partly because the role that you take as a spouse is so varied. Some people are more involved than others. And we, we have, although our roles are quite different, we do have quite a team approach to ministry. And so I guess maybe I'm more aware and clued up and, oh, yeah, involved in things than some other spouses. But I have definitely really struggled with that. And I've had to work really hard to build relationships or find people who are safe and confidential and significantly older and more experienced in leadership than me to be able to air some of these things um, and get some wisdom on that because it, it has been hard. But you have, um, I mean, I, I think probably we had some similar challenges to you guys too, but you've, you've, like, you've got so much better at, learning what to share and what isn't helpful for me and I feel like that's been quite a growth area for us as a couple isn't it I think um I've never really had to experience the other side of this because Holly never gets criticized um (laughs) that's not true it's not true it's just that when you're the spouse people criticize you behind your back rather than to your face but but Lisa's the same like Holly Lisa is this like people I'm I'm not very divisive. I'm generally loved, but I do have a divisive edge. Sometimes I'm making tough calls or, you know, when George Floyd died, we've always spoken out against uh, systemic racial injustice, but people started hearing it for the first time after George, even though I've done it consistently. And so I, I do have some of that. But Lisa had one person leave the church because of her and not because of me. And I was so happy. I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. how you could ever leave a church over lisa i don't know she's like the most lovely woman I know. ever. It's, she is an amazing human being yeah yeah I, I think i i have had to learn as a probably chronic oversharer um who externally processes what's helpful yeah. and what's not helpful and to be less selfish about my needs um, of what I'm trying to process. Um, and I think in those early early years where you are getting bits of criticism, it's yes. a bit of a shock <laughs> to the system. Um, and I think as you get through it, you're just like, oh, that's sort of par for the course now. That's normal. That's actually nothing too much to worry about. And you kind of know what what's the more serious criticism and what isn't. And you get a bit more 
confident in yourself of like, I can ignore that because that's, and also I think having a really good eldership around. So I'll just often share the emails that I, you know, the odd email that comes in. One was fantastic. The seven points of why you're a terrible leader. Um, which is great. I just share that with the eldership. What do you think? Is there any truth in this? Mm, yeah. And that was really helpful just to get an objective opinion and to use, use the eldership um, wisely as well. Mm. So it's not just at home. It's not just between us. And then we feel a bit more isolated, but let's take this as a team um, and gain wisdom and to have that bit of maturity as you get more used to that lead role, where it's like, I can, I can live with the fact if I'm not as perfect as I thought I was. And can I agree with anything this person is saying about me? Because it probably is true. And I'm, to be honest, I'm probably way worse, right. way, way worse right. than this person has any <laughs> idea if they were to see my, you know, my life and inside my head and, uh, and so on. What, that, that would be a good response is to say someone, oh, it's much worse than you think. Like when they send you, that would actually be quite a clever, I'll have to file that, Howard. That's a neat systems theory move, actually. We're getting a little tight on time. So let me ask two questions of each of you uh, for our gauntlet. So really, it's it's not so much a gauntlet as a glove of anxiety. Um, but the first question would simply be, um, I, I think each of us bring into our leadership and into our adulthood uh, assets and liabilities from our family of origin. It's got nothing to do with blame or mum and dad. It just is the way we made meaning as a kid. And generational traits. Um, I, I know in my when I think of my assets and liabilities, it's less about my particular parents and it's more about the cuss lineage. Uh, what would be an asset and what would be a liability for each of you from your family of origin? I think a, an asset for me is um, storytelling. Mm. So my um, family, uh, we tell lots of stories. You, We tell memories. Memories are a really important thing. Partly, I think, because uh, so the generation before my parents all died very young, very, very young. And so we've kind of created this pattern of sharing stories and sharing memories to make sure that everybody kind of has a sense of knowing each other. And I think that practice has been really helpful as we've kind of come into leadership. And as I've led uh, the ministries that I've been involved in, this idea of storytelling to motivate people and to share vision and to get to know one another um, and encourage one another. And remember that in all this work and the pressure that actually there's these amazing stories um, that we can kind of encourage each other with. And in a way, and in teaching too, in a way of um, sharing the Bible, like using stories to kind of explain that. So storytelling, I think, is something that's been a real asset. I think... In terms of something that's been more challenging, I guess um, there is uh, there is a tendency to resist change in quite an extreme way. And so I think for me, um, so I am the first person in, I genuinely don't know how many generations, many, many generations to move out of my hometown. Um, so all my family live within a cluster of villages um, in one town. And I live like two hours away in London. And I'm a slightly odd person that decide to move away. Um, 
So I think I can react in an unusually extreme way to change and it makes me much more anxious um, because I haven't really grown up where there's like a pattern of seeing that being embraced and as a positive thing like the positive thing is retaining the good we already have like let's protect that it's a very protective mode and I think that's wonderful there's so much there to protect Um, but yeah seeing change as something that's positive and that has opportunities and is to be embraced is something that I yeah I haven't seen and and so that can create I think quite a bit of anxiety in me. For me it would be seeing how things can be done better Mm. and it would be a good and a bad trait in our family so I'm the kind of person if there's a thousand light bulbs and one isn't working I notice that Um, and so you can help see how things improve. It's quite useful in that and to stretch you. But the the kind of shadow side of that is that nothing can ever be good enough. You're never good enough. And then you can project that onto others with impossible standards that they can't live up to as well. So that's the sort of uh, you know, good and a bad side to this whole idea of, of seeing how things can be improved and done better. Yeah. Yeah. And when recently in your life have you both felt most fully and completely loved? And I just want to say, I love interviewing couples together. It's such a gift to our listeners. But just give you permission to answer however you like that includes each other or does not. I think it would be inappropriate to answer that question. There. <laughs> is that your answer? It's, an, it's a completely um, acceptable answer as a, as a physical uh, yeah, experience. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> um, Apart from that, I think there would be uh, family moments where we are kind of with the kids, snuggled together, you know, watching a film, hanging out. Um... Or like bedtime, like where they mm. suddenly have loads of energy and we're kind of all doing like a little play wrestle together. Part, they all pile on top of each other. And I mean, our kids are, they're, they're four and seven. So they're at this great age where as their parents were still kind of the center of their universe and they kind of still love us more than everybody else. And our four-year-old has, he has no real inhibition. So he'll just like march around the house declaring at the top of his voice, I love you. I love you. And Howard like will go off to work and he'll shout through the letterbox, Mm. you're a love heart daddy. And so I think just hanging out with them, yeah, they make us feel very loved, don't Yeah, they? it's very cool. On Sunday, he came running up to me before the kids went out. I was just about to preach. I still had my mask on. And he just came, gave me a big hug and then kissed me on on the mask right in the middle. <laughs> it was just so cute. It's a great way to, to start a, a sermon, just to, with that sense of being loved by a little boy. Oh, I love that. I, I cultivated a habit when my kids were young for them to pray over me before I preached and it's still top top highlight backstage. One of my one of these little hands on my shoulder. Um, it's very vulnerable. Oh, thank you, guys. Hey, I know for so many of my listeners, this is probably your first encounter with Howard and Holly. I've known them for several years now. They're, they're one of the great highlights for me when I get the incredible privilege of going over to England a couple of times a year and being part of this amazing network. A, a couple of closing comments from me, guys. Um, from from really the first moment I met Howard and Holly, uh, I'm not alone in this assessment. They're just a, a rare breed of heart and brain and hunger for the Lord. Um, 
Howard's preaching, Howard's a very gifted preacher. His preaching has that strong intellect, but also this strong heart that comes through. Um, most of us are always on the hunt for a fresh preacher to listen to. You can grab Howard on the Westminster Chapel podcast or their YouTube channel and listen to his preaching. Howard, not to put you under pressure there. Um, Holly, uh, I want to say, is also an executive coach. She's trained in facilitating the DISC profile. And on either side of the pond, you know, obviously time zones become an issue. But um, we're also going to put Holly's contact information. If you're looking for some coaching, corporate coaching, one-on-one coaching, the hopecoach.uk is another way you can reach out to Holly and just get some help. Uh, obviously, you can hear in their posture and tone the kinds of people they are. Um, I'm so thrilled that they've released this book. I know it's not going to be their last, but Howard and Holly, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 